hello everybody. This is um, our episode 10 of Treasure Islands Pedagogies, our podcast from the Centre for Innovation in Education at the University of Liverpool. I'm Tundi Varga Atkins and we've got three guests today from across the world. Um, and we are going to talk about our Treasure Islands and what happens there. So can I ask our three guests to just briefly introduce yourself, what your original discipline was and, and your current role? Okay, Camille, Dr. Camille Dixon-Dean. I'm in Sydney, Australia right now. My original discipline was computer science with a little bit of software development and learning sciences. And now I'm a learning designer, head of a learning design team. Great, thank you, Camille. Hi, I'm Dr. Becca Ferrari um, from the University of Nottingham. My original discipline is environmental engineering, which sits somewhere between, I guess, environmental science and chemical process engineering. So across a, across a wide range of uh, industries and sectors. Um, I'm now a uh, digital learning director um, in the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Nottingham. And I've been doing a lot of work in the last year or so on that um, pivot to online learning. Yes, don't don't we know? Yes, thanks, Becca. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, Nogutula Tula Vilagati. I'm currently a full-time PhD student in education, and my work is on curriculum design and pedagogy for blended uh, learning. Um, I've uh, I have a BA in humanities, so I'm from the arts, unlike um, the rest of our panel. Uh, then I did a master's in education with a focus on curriculum development as well as master in instructional design and technology. Great, thank you. So you, I love the interdisciplinary cr crowd here today and also the fact that you're all very much in demand during the pandemic or uh, still must be. And uh, so this, um, our Treasure Island pedagogies is usually uh, we talk about um, special time with students when, when you know they are learning and, and, and what makes that happen. So I would love to hear some of your light bulb moments. I know that as, as educators, you will have had many light bulb moments that you experienced in, in your students happening. But if you could just share one and, you know, what was it, what made it happen? That would be fantastic. I would give one that was recently, it just it literally occurred maybe about two weeks ago, where uh, a seasoned learning designer taking a grad cert subject and they're just trying to, you know, upskill. They're just trying to upskill. And I said something and you just saw their eyes, you know, when your eyes just slowly large and, <laughs> and you're all pivoting. And we're all pivoting on me in this this digital space and you have a screen and the eyes slowly large and they go like, could you repeat that, Camille? And I said, yes, you know, this is what is occurring. And then he just did this. <laughs> you know, it's a podcast and you can't see, but he just did the hands where you go by your head and you explode. And he goes, that is mind blowing. I've never heard that before. And I go like, well, I thought most people knew that. And he goes, no, I never thought of learning in that way or that form and of that way of expressing of learning. And that to me, it, it just reminds me of an article that I've always referred to in any of the work I've done and it's by Alexander, where they say learning is a change and learning can be accepted as well as rejected. 
And what I noticed in that picture of a sea of maybe 30 students were that some people rejected what I was saying, like, uh, but he was struggling to accept it. Mm-hmm. And he just goes, that was mind blowing. And to mm-hmm. me, that was a sign for me at that moment of a light bulb. It was physically and visually a light bulb moment. Yes, I mean, you were very much into explaining with your body. So yeah, it, it must have been a brilliant moment. And I, and I guess that's really interesting what you say as well, that, you know, in a sea of people, it, it might not happen for everyone at the same time. But can you share with us, I'm eager to know, what was that? What was the thing that was mind-blowing? So what I did was, I, and I have this exercise that I do quite often where I show students who are expecting a traditional case study where, you know, they read the text and then they critique it and they all discuss it amongst themselves. And sometimes I give them video cases. And in my video case, which none of them were expecting, all 30-odd students, was a snake handler. <laughs> Handling a snake handler, okay, like cobras and vipers and yeah. He was feeding cobras, and I said, "This is our um, this is our workspace. This is the client. He's ill." And they all look at me like, "What do you mean he's ill? He's ill, <laughs> and you now have to train a new person <laughs> to do that in a short space of time because." The, the snakes are being used in experiments and they need to be fed in a timely manner, etc. And of course, they were all fearful and their mindset when I said to them that it had to be done in a matter of two to three days with a lot level of skillability. And as a learning designer, a lot of them struggled with the content of the design as opposed to the actual task of designing. Mm-hmm. And they didn't understand that you have to be able to separate those. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand that. They said, well, normally I understand what the client wants and I will work with it. And I go like, not all the time. Are you going to be in agreement with the content that you have to design? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, they were just like, well, yes, I'm, I don't know the content. So, you know, that sometimes that works out. I go like, no, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't agree with the content that you have to design. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they didn't get it for quite a while. And then he, he just saw his eyes just slowly open. Mm-hmm. And then he went like, holy cow, I never thought of my work that way. I've been designing for years. And I've just always accepted. Mm-hmm. And I said, we do. But sometimes there's content that's going to come across your face and you're going to go like, I don't know if I can design this. <laughs> But mm-hmm. you have to do your job. <laughs> wow, that's brilliant. You know, bringing that metaphor, or you know, that to to make that differentiation, and and I guess, I guess for you is to to drive that understanding of that this is a difference. Yeah, thanks, Camille. I think we will. The snake handling picture is definitely <laughs> one to say. What about you, you Becca or Tula? Yeah, I'll go. I'll go next. So um, I do a lot of um, I, do, I, I work with engineers, um, you know, right now my learners are staff, but I, my learners are also students as well. And I've spent the last, um, you know, six, five, six years teaching undergraduate and postgraduate students as, and as engineers. Um, 
we obviously we teach them academic content, but we're also trying to, you know, um, to produce people that are go out and are going to work as professionals. Um, and a key part of that is actually the development of their professional skills, their professional competencies. Um, you know, I work in digital learning. Some of those are digital, some of those aren't. Um, but one of the things that students have often struggled with is un was perhaps understanding, you know, why I was getting to them to do some of the things that they were doing. Because actually, in terms of our degree programs we don't necessarily make it that explicit in terms of their professional skills development so I had a real light bulb light bulb moment with my some of my students when I started actually to give them feedback on the development of their professional skills not just the feedback on the academic stuff that they were being you know summatively assessed on but actually some slightly more informal feedback just on those um those sort of those those softer skills those professional skills and that could be team working you know collaboration you know planning um all those sorts of things that you know we take we always we take for granted but you know without giving them that framework previously without actually giving them some feedback on it how are they ever going to really sort of judge how they were doing and actually develop? So for me, that was a that was a great one for my for my students, and that's something that I'm looking that we're sort of expanding on much more widely now. Did you get any pushback, Becca? <laughs> the students are from the staff. <laughs> the staff. <laughs> no, no, not 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 at all. I mean, we, you know, I think it's it's always the, it been there sort of implicitly. I think with 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 engineers is that they have these professional skills. Um, and it's even within our accreditation requirements, right? We have to be able to say that we're we're teaching them. But what we don't have to be able to say is actually to go through that tick box and say, and this is where we're assessing it. Um, and then actually, to me, what's the point of assessment if we're not going to give them feedback, right? You know, assessment without feedback is, from a learner perspective, is pretty pointless. Um, it meets it meets requirements in other ways, but for for a learner without understanding where they've got to, how they've developed, you know, whether that be, you know, self-assessment or whether that be, you know, peer assessment or assess assessment from an instructor and some feedback, um, there's, there's very little, there's very little value. So it's actually something that as a, as a, as a department, as a university, we're building on a lot more, not just from my work, from the work of many other people. Um, as a university, we're actually coming up with a almost a digital capabilities framework now. Um, which will span the whole of our degree programs at the University of Nottingham. We're launching the first part of that this year. It's called um, the Digital Student. Um, we'll move through, which is about really preparing our students, giving the students the sort of the professional learning skills that they need to engage in digital learning in this new sort of online, blended, flexible world. Um, and then moving through to what they need for research projects. And then finally, what we call the Digital Graduate, which is really about what are the skills they're going to need was they go out into the world of work. So we're making it a lot more explicit in what we're doing now, which is fantastic. I was gonna ask, you mentioned self and peer assessment as well, because I'm guessing in professional context as well, being able to giving feedback, you know, whether, whether whenever you're team working with other people or, mm -hmm. and, and also just generally, I guess that's also a transferable skill in a sense. So have you had some experiences about that when students you know how they receive this kind of feedback or whether they they might have to give it to other people in their teams yeah so it's it's quite a it's quite a tricky one isn't it i mean in terms of particularly in terms of sort of peer assessment and peer feedback um there's there's sort of there's two schools of thoughts or almost on this there's one where they're actually perhaps working together in a group in a team and it's on something yes it's collaborative but they're being assessed 
as a group. And you get a very particular dynamic there, I think, when they have to peer assess, because at the end of the day, that assessment is going to affect the other people's marks. And it's going to, to a degree, it's going to affect their mark as well when everything gets weighted. So there's, there's peer assessments, um, but often that isn't necessarily linked with feedback. So I think there's also that more sort of continuous thing around being able to, you know, work as a team, work as a group of students and feedback on what each other's doing as you're working towards a common goal. And that's something that we, you know, we again, we try and help students with, um, again, quite informally. Um, but that can be through even things like, you know, coach, you know, coaching on how to work as a team. So we do we do things certainly in our department where actually we do things like, um, you know, Myers-Briggs or 16 personalities where we get students to actually, you know, um, you know, assess themselves, understand the different personality types that they have in the team, how they might interact with each other, how different people are going to engage and what that actually means. Because, you know, again, for engineers, when they go out into the professional world, they, they ain't going to be sitting on their own working. They're going to be working in big teams with people from lots of different backgrounds, from different cultures, you know, understanding how to interact, how different people interact and how they communicate. Again, it's all really important things that, you know, the softer skills, we don't assess them on, but if we can help them develop those, give them some, you know, feedback on that, I think is really, really valuable. Mm -hmm. And have you had some experiences, you know, when, I don't know, students reception of that feedback? Because I guess it, it, it must be so valuable, you know, when you mentioned Myers-Briggs or, when, you know, when they discover something about themselves that perhaps they didn't know or they get confirmed that they can indeed do a skill that they perhaps didn't think they knew or... So yeah, in 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 the spirit of the live ball moments, is there anything? Yeah, it's the yeah. I think the spirit is. It's almost it's almost for them. It's the recognition that everyone is different. It's okay to be different. We don't all have to be good, and we all shouldn't be good. It's not useful if everyone excels at the same things and works in different ways. And I think it's that almost that self acceptance of themselves and that that time that space to reflect and go this is me and this is how I do things and this is other people and that's over there and that's how they do things and then what we can help them with is okay well how do you balance that how do you work together to achieve that common goal be that you know a design project or you know what, whatever it is they're trying to do something they make or, you know something that they're doing in the lab so yeah I think it's it's really about the understanding of self and that reflection I think. Mm -hmm. That's lovely because I guess in in this age of you know students being anxious or you know just about whether they're doing well enough and and so that must be quite reassuring as well when they they get that message. It is, yeah. Um, I'm you know I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's been it's been harder to do a lot of this stuff online because to do this other stuff effectively, you know, it's the, the, always the best way for us is to get, to have them in a room and to make that connection, you know, in person and be able to do it. But it's great that we've still been able to, you know, we've been able to use Teams and we've been able to continue doing this work. Um, and actually, um, we found that having had experience of doing this sort of thing over a few years, you know, working with students in groups, um, be that, you know, formally through assessments or just in, in more informally in terms of the work that we do. Um, it set our students in good stead as well. So if we look at our students that are in their third year, fourth year when the pandemic hit, they actually coped really, really well. We were really, you know, we were really proud and really happy with the way that they managed to, to make that pivot because they were able to, you know, rebuild those connections online. And obviously it helped that they already knew people um in in the real world as it were um but they've, they've really they've really taken the ball by the horns um and you know and applied those skills that they developed and developed them further to be able to you know be successful in this digital world 
Mm -hmm. Great, and we we lovely to hear more about your digital students, and that, yeah, that we'll definitely follow that. Thank you, Becca. Zula, what about your light bulb moment? Yeah, mine has been working with um, lecturers in redesigning their courses so that they are um, accessible to students, and uh, um, we have worked uh, in various through various um, portfolios or projects. I remember one where we designed a course uh, on quality assuring blended learning and uh, we were now offering the course online. Um, and this was in 2019 <laughs> before COVID. And what happened was during the first week when the students uh, from different East African universities were taking the course, uh, being oriented on uh, getting started with the course, there was very low participation. I, at some point, we noted that only one student was actually uh, actively engaging uh, with introducing uh, themselves and so on. So we went back and uh, asked a, a more experienced uh, colleague um, who's been running this uh, six-week course on facilitating online. And then she looked at what we had put in there for, um, and he picked it very quickly that there is no way your students will begin to engage um, with the tasks before they have formed deep human connections. So for us as a team uh, who have uh, co-designed this course, it was a light bulb moment to say, wow. And so we had to go back and actually uh, ask them uh, informal questions, like what are their interests, which have nothing to do with their portfolios of being quality assurance directors and so on. So, and ever since that time, and then came COVID and ERT, emergency remote teaching. And then we realized that if we approach uh, blended learning the way we uh, from content and, you know, it just doesn't work until people warm up to each other and feel like they, they have a common purpose. And so that's that's been a passion for a number of years. That's great. And it links with what Becca was talking about, that it's much easier to learn together if you do have those connections. Uh, so we, we are on this treasure island with students and uh, they're learning. They've got lots of light bulb moments. So as an educator, what, what are the teaching props or pedagogies that you can't do without? And again, it's quite strict because we're, you must have loads, but we're just asking you to highlight one of these that you would love to take to your treasure islands to make this lovely learning happening with the students? Uh, this is a pedagogy that I've just been exposed to again. And thanks to being a student um, during this time and also involved in, in a project here at the university where I'm doing my PhD. By the way, I work for the University of Eswatini, which is closer to where I'm doing my PhD currently. Uh, the University of Cape Town in South Africa. So I'm involved with this project, student project, um, where the students are um, engaged or they've been recruited to support uh, lecturers 
uh, with educational technology. So they we call them EdTech Advisors. And mm -hmm. the project is a universal design for learning project. So I work with them. One of the sessions where, while we were training them was on the pedagogy of discomfort. And I learned so much from it that, you know, there are these um, issues uh, in higher education that um, affect teaching and learning uh, such that some students then tend to um, be seen to be de uh, deficient and they don't kind of belong in higher education. So this is what the pedagogy of discomfort tries to, to, to deal with, to say, let's bring in the issues of um, religion, race, you know, and everything else, and let us confront these issues, uh, uh, gender issues and so on, uh, as well as, um, you know, so that as we learn together in forming these deep human connections, we need to also engage, you know, in an authentic manner with one another. So that's what I liked. And the lady uh, the, uh, who was facilitating the session, what she uh, helped me understand better more than before is that you can't, you know, and this is what I've been doing myself as an academic developer, is that you come to facilitate a session, but you are also lecturing to people. So it doesn't work. What she did was to bring scenarios, uh, real life scenarios, uh, covering a spectrum of these uh, issues. Then we engaged with those and she was giving all the participants a lot of uh, room to, to, to engage and, and, and voice out they are deep-seated, you know, uh, uh, responses or perspective on the perspectives on these issues, which uh, directly affect teaching and learning in higher education. Thanks. Yeah, I mean that must be such a fascinating debate to be part of, and definitely a, a learning experience. Yeah, thank you, Tula. Rebecca. I'm trying not to cheat here and include multiple <laughs> ones because everything just rolls together. But for me, I mean, for me, my real sort of my, I guess one of the, the key sort of pedagogical approaches that I, I always, as I go back to, I guess, again and again, that I keep pulling from my toolbox is always around this sort of, um, this sort of project-based and, you know, real world problem scenario-based learning for our students. Um, and that can be in a class with, oh, I hate to say it, classes with 180, 200 students. That can be working with a small with a small group of, say, you know, five, six, seven students. But um, I think where you can give students like a really sort of sort of problem or scenario that they can look at rather than just you know teaching them and giving them the information giving them that giving them that that problem that challenge and then getting them to discuss and come together and work together to come and come up with a solution um and for engineers it's about a solution and that's the thing they always really struggle with is actually <laughs> the one right solution it's not about is this right it's about is this something that works that meets the criteria you know getting them to even come up with the with the criteria by which they judge their solution um to say whether it's you know a good enough solution or not um but i think those those problem-based moments and those problem-based approaches i think certainly for me are always are always the ones that are the most are the most valuable to those students to my students anyway <laughs> 
Great, thanks, Becca. So, yeah, I mean, those things as well will be very useful on the Treasure Island, should we need to come up with any solutions there. Yeah. But definitely some similarities with Tula's in the fact that, you know, you are having students to discuss the scenario and yeah. all their prior mm -hmm. knowledge and then create yeah. Well, and yeah. I think, yeah, and I think ones that really draw on their different perspectives, you know, we have quite diverse cohorts of students, you know, particularly we have, you know, for example, we have a lot of a lot of students that will come from our, you know, our overseas campuses in Malaysia and China and come and spend some time with us. And in environmental engineering, actually, that can make a big difference because mm -hmm. the practices in those countries are sometimes in incredibly, incredibly different. And what have thoughts of what's thought of as you know good environmental practice in one part of the world is very different to another part of the world. Um, and the challenges and actually almost the reason that they've taken their course, you know, in the first place might be very different. So, for example, I have students that come from China that have been exposed to an awful lot of you know pollution from mining, you know, from you know rare earth processing, a lot of awful lot of air pollution. Um, and you put scenarios in front of them. Um, for example, from there's one that I use around um, an incinerator that's based in a, in a, I think it's somewhere it's somewhere in Eastern Europe, um, and about a sort of a rates of you know ch child child cancer um, that were caused by pollution that came from this incinerator, and they have a very different perspective on that and bring a very different element of flavour to the discussions with their peers from perhaps the UK. And I think it's it's those things where you can really force them almost, give them the opportunity, the platform to discuss their different perspectives, I think really helps bring that sort of that, you know, that different approach to the solutions that they come up with, um, which I find really nice. Yeah, and I mean, that was a really interesting surprise for me when I was doing my PhD on, on engineering is seeing this human and social elements that is quite important in engineering. So although mm. you're talking about science, it's always located in a culture, in a social, political environment. And exactly. as you say, if you're asking students to develop their own criteria, come up with one solution, they will really have to situate that in wherever that solution needs to be. So I, I thought that was, a, for me, that was a light bulb moment about mm -hmm. the discipline of engineering, just to see that human mm -hmm. social elements that goes into it. Thank you, Becca. So what about Camille, what about your teaching prop or pedagogy? Right, so my toolbox also is problem-based, you would believe, because <laughs> I was just trained that way. But when you combine the problem with Tula's pedagogy, it becomes about meaning and relevance. And I like to work with stories. So I always have a story to tell my students. I always give them a story that they can link what they feel or what their experience is with and ask them for something similar so they can draw a connection. And then we could all try and solve that together. So um, I've talked about um, doing project management under intense circumstances and designing solutions when you're under intense circumstances. Um, things like doing, um, designing a program when you, so I don't know if you guys remember, I don't know how old you are, but I'm not gonna give away my age. Um, the Y2K problem. I was just talking to a student about the Y2K problem and they were like, the what? And I'm like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so I had to explain to them. I said, do you remember Prince sang this song, 1999? Well, right. In the, at that age, <laughs> we had a problem that the, pro, the, the, the programming, the programs that we created, the software would change everything to zeros and it wouldn't have a number to go on to make 2000. 
And they were like, the what? The white? And I just realized this group of students will not relate to that. Yeah, but guess yeah. what? They will relate to something like um, COVID. They will relate to something like that was recent, like um, the, 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 um, the flu that we had in, um, in South America that came up that was affecting the kids. Zika. The, Zika. Zika virus, because it's more recent. Like my daughter would not know anything about Zika virus. She's been like, what? All she knows is COVID now. I just told her about um, 9-11. She goes, when did that happen? Why did it happen? And then she goes, oh, okay, but now we have COVID. And I go like, but still, it's a big thing. And she goes, no, this is bigger. So the relevance mm -hmm. and the way of dealing with solving that, what you call Becca problem, I think it has to be enrooted in some kind of base foundational that has some kind of pull and tug at their value system else you will not get anywhere. And if you can't have that in your toolbox, you will fail because nobody will be listening to you. No one will respond to you and the information will just bounce off of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you've already made, because one of my last, my in the question when, when we have uh, almost like painted our islands or created our islands, Tula with uh, pedagogies of discomfort, Becca with scenario or project-based learning and Camille with storytelling and making things relevant. So I think we've already got a really rich experience across your three islands pulled together. Is there anything that you, if, if we imagine this in an archipelago of islands, anything that you might want to add to it to, to make it even better or ready for the future? I, I would throw in a wrench <laughs> into the toolbox. <laughs> and my wrench, I, I use this um, this theory a lot, and a lot of people said, you know, it's a negative theory. And I go like, yes, it's one that's negative-based. But cognitive dissonance, I believe that without cognitive dissonance, no one would learn. And a lot of people don't understand the basis of that theory, that you have to the learning is not, a, it's, I mean, you can learn when you're happy, but you learn a lot more when you're negatively, you show a negative. And a lot of people don't understand that that's what cognitive dissonance does. It makes you fight in your brain to understand the different pathways of understanding. And I use that a lot, especially for adult learners, which, you know, it's hard to teach us, right? We've mm -hmm. learned we've learned to walk we didn't learn to struggle i always say look at the baby learning to walk they get it you you're already walking you don't want to learn to walk again <laughs> because you already get it mm. so that fight i think is what we need to kind of instill in, a, in in most of our learners to really get the best out of them in terms of learning and i think that is my wrench i would throw into my little toolbox okay. <laughs> i love that I love that. And you know what? That's something that I feel that as someone that's where my learners for the last 18 months have been academic staff as well. And we've been, you know, getting them to, you know, to to relearn, to rethink how they deliver their own teaching. That cognitive dissonance has been has been clear. And actually, it's, you know, some of some of the academics, some of the colleagues that have had the biggest, you know, been almost, you know, the biggest skeptics of some of these things, where they've had that cognitive dissonance, they've almost become our evangelists now, right? In That's certain right. Ways. 
yeah they, they, some of them are the ones that have made the biggest change the one that said they would never do anything differently that there was only you had to you know the only way to teach was to stand up and to lecture you know the sage on the stage and that's how it was and that was the best way of doing things you know but you're right it's that it's that cognitive dissonance and it's that discomfort isn't it and you know yeah. and almost being for them it was actually being in the position of the of their learners and realizing and actually going wait a second no I can't st- I can't I can't just talk at them for two hours because someone's just put me in a team's meeting for two hours and I've hated it and I've gone off and I've done something else and you know so you're right I love that I love that. <laughs> Two years ago I actually had a call um I was doing some professional development with an academic and I told her well why are you doing these steps because you know you need to give your students the ability to voice their opinion mm-hmm. and she was just her her body language moved from being relaxed and being very tense. And she goes, I must control them. I must tell them what to do. I must walk them through. And I go like, it's not military camp. No, you don't. (laughs) They have a choice to learn. They have a choice to reject what you're saying. And they can say, you know, hogwash. I don't believe you. And that she cried. She left my office crying. Three weeks later, she said, I just sat back and let them do. And they told me that was the best class they ever had. <laughs> Brilliant. And she said, she said it was so difficult to let them just do. Mm. Well, we lose control then, don't we? You know, and we, we, we want to feel in control. But actually, does that make the best learning experience for our, for our students? We are in control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> Good question. I'm guessing that here, Tula's, um human connection or or that creating that safe environment is very important as well so we have the cognitive dissonance but even in an environment where where you've you know you've made that safe learning space for them great okay so you've been working very hard teaching the students you obviously have got lots of light bulb moments that you've shared and and will be doing those so now it's time to relax on a probably on a bit of a corner in the island. So what would be your luxury thing that you would like to relax off duty when you're not teaching, you know, to replenish yourself? Well, I'll go I'll go first if no one else does. For me it's my allotment. So I love growing vegetables and things like that and um I think it was it was March this year we t- we took over and allotment just you know 10 minutes walk away from us and it was an absolute mess when we got it actually it was full of like you know broken glass and rubbish from I think there was stuff in there from I think even before I was born in like the the early 1980s there was you know bits of demolished greenhouse and all sorts of things but it's literally been the most wonderful space for us over the last few months to be outside to be away from technology um you know all weather you know down there with my partner and my my uh, my oldest daughter it's been it's been it's been so nice so that would be that would be my luxury item that's quite a big one because it's a space and we can I can feed us all as well with everything yeah, that we're doing on the island right yeah it's more than welcome so what yeah. produce have you got Becca oh gosh where do I start we've got um we've got cucumbers and tomatoes and you know, lettuces and salads, rhubarb, raspberries, carrots, swedes, turnips, beetroot. Wow. Cabbages, potatoes, corn, strawberries. Yeah, oh, just keep going. Squashes, everything. So you have a garden of Eden or some amazing treasure. Oh, there's, 
gone, yes. Yeah, so it would be, yeah, I'd feed us all on our treasure island. If everyone <laughs> would help do the weeding, maybe. <laughs> Camille? I'm struggling here because I, I can tell you what my heart would tell you and then I'll tell you what my head would say. My heart would say, um, because what a lot of people don't know is I used to dance professionally for quite many a number of years. So my heart would tell you, I'll be the entertainment, right? <laughs> I will get us all dancing and everything. But then my head will go, you can't do those things anymore. <laughs> it's been years, right? So um, what I do right now, and I do it a lot with my daughter, is I do a lot of crafting and a lot of arts. We do, um, we find a lot of mixed media arts, you know, different oil paints, charcoal, and, and put it together with her idea of glitz and glam, of, of everything has to have sparkly and glitter in it to, to make the life go better. So I guess I'll decorate our space, hopefully in a very serene um, color scheme. Lovely. <laughs> I think we would we would probably have to tell you not ever give up your heart's passion, but yeah. I'm sure you can fit both of them on the island. So yeah, yeah. Tula, I also struggled because uh, during COVID, um, my daughter and I we share an apartment here in Cape Town, and before we were not into cooking, but now we we think it's just a way of uh, dis uh, you know. Um, bringing fun into our lives and <laughs> so we've been experimenting with a few um, dishes so I think one that I would take would be this way of making a steamed bread where we put in uh, vegetables and um, spinach, uh, carrot and cheese so we, we really enjoy that a lot and we keep experimenting monthly with the uh, something new and fun <laughs> brilliant well with all Becca's produce you will yeah. experiment even further with all the yeah. vegetables <laughs> you will have lovely meal times helping on the allotment and dancing and crafting on the island that sounds amazing <laughs> i want to live on this island <laughs> i want to go now <laughs> right thank you all so much it's time to say our, our goodbyes and row row towards our island maybe or away from the island but thank you i really enjoyed having this conversation and um thank you for contributing and uh, goodbye Bye. 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 Bye.